looking at respecting permissible differences that exist in the church. That's what this chapter is about. While there is a center and a core to our doctrine and practice as followers of Jesus, and much of Romans is concerned with laying out for us what belongs in the core, what's in the center, there's also these peripheral matters that the Bible doesn't decide for us. And for sake of peace, this being the third week now, I don't normally want to do part threes of anything. Uh, Movies, trilogies, I don't like them typically. Uh, By the time they get to the part three, they've lost their story. However, um, just to give you sort of a procedural note here, how I've proceeded with this, for sake of peace, as this passage tells us, I've tried to keep the subject more general. Uh, I've not gone after any particular one thing that that people might... uh, uh, experience some disharmony over, but I've, I've been more generalized and categorical. I've, I've said in sort of list form, here are areas where permissible uh, differences live. I've been more general on this rather than pointing at any specific examples from our mutual church life here, and, and for a simple reason. I don't want to feel anyone to feel like they're being singled out uh, or their thing is being picked on, etc., But now when I say permissible differences, I've used that phrase over and over, permissible differences being matters the Bible doesn't decide for us and therefore are not matters of obedience for all Christians. Don't hear me saying in that, well, unless you have a chapter and verse, then everything's gravy. The last couple of sermons would have actually benefited, I think, from having a Q&A time afterwards so that we could talk about nuance and we could talk about qualifications and we could note how the complications work out. So chapter 14, he gives us a complication that was in the early church. It wasn't just in the Roman church, it was also in the Corinthian church and the Ephesian church. Anywhere that Jews and Gentiles were following Christ together, you had the complication concerning those who kept kosher Uh, over what they ate. Uh, Also, it extended out to what about uh, if you're from a Gentile background and and you came from pagan temple practice of offering meat to idols? What about that? Uh, But there were people who believed the Scripture had decided that for them, particularly if you were a Jewish Christian. You thought, well, the law of Moses encoded kosher regulations. That's God's Word. And so if that was good for us, it should be good for the Gentiles as well. This was a conflict. But also the Jewish or the Gentile Christians coming out of paganism, verse 2, one person believes you may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's probably being vegetables. It's probably a context of Gentile Christians who swore off meat altogether because they came from these pagan practices where Meat was offered to idols in pagan temples. Now, what does Paul say to this? He says, verse 14, you can eat anything. And he's speaking for God. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And then he says down in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So a Jewish, let's put this in that context first and then amplify it out to ours. A Jewish Christian comes to Paul and says, are you telling me not to eat kosher? Weren't you a a Pharisee of Pharisees? You're telling me 
not to eat kosher. And Paul says, it's no longer binding on us. But then if that Jewish Christian says, well, yeah, but I, you know, I just, I just don't, I don't feel right if I'm not eating kosher. I just feel like I'm supposed to do this. Paul says, eat kosher then. If your conscience is bound by it, but make sure you're loving the Gentiles who don't eat kosher, why would he tell them to eat kosher even though he takes pains to say, it's, re it's repeated throughout the text, you don't really need to do this anymore. The reason is respect for conscience, respecting permissible differences. Look at verse 23, the last verse in the chapter. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin for the one whose conscience is bound. If there's incompatibility between this X factor and my faith, don't sin against conscience. And not just for Jews coming out of kosher regulations in the law of Moses, but also again for Gentiles. I have 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10 in mind here also, similar passages. They would say to Paul, what about meat sacrificed to idols? And Paul says, it's okay, but watch yourself there, lest exercising your freedom tempts you to return to the paganism that you've left. Food and other material things, it's food in this chapter, it can be all kinds of material things, in and of themselves, they aren't bad. Uh, music, we've, we've had debates uh, here about music. Music in and of itself is not bad. It's, it's amoral. But anything, anything, any material substance can be co-opted by Satan, certainly for, for his purposes. Nancy Piercy, a longtime associate of Chuck Colson, wrote a book called Total Truth a number of years ago, and she says it this way, her words, the line between good and evil is not drawn between one part of creation and another part, but runs through the human heart itself in our own disposition to use the creation for good or evil. It's all in how things are used. We're free to do what our conscience, under the authority of Scripture, allows us to do. In matters where the, the Bible hasn't decided for us, we're free to go with our conscience, which is parametered by the, the authority of, of God's Word. What we're not free to do is violate the conscience of other believers in fellowship with us, and here is where everything gets complicated. And adding to the degree of difficulty in this for the church in the modern world is that in the modern world, everything is subject to commodification. Commodification means we apply commercial, economic, market values to things like relationships, to fellowship. And so uh, when I commodify my relationships, if this relationship isn't working for me, I trade in on another model. When we commodify our, our fellowship in the body of Christ, uh, I'll belong to the church that's, 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 I've got all my felt needs and, and I'll, I'll, I'll belong to the church that satisfies those felt needs, commodification. Evangelical, evangelicalism as a, as a free market. There's a core center to our doctrine. The book of Romans has, has given it to us. Jesus makes us pleasing to God through his life, his death, his resurrection. But holding to this truth in the center, we find 
We desire to please Him as we live our lives in response to what He's done for us and in relationship with one another. This chapter is not about the process of deciding where we are on peripheral matters. There is a process sometimes that goes into that. But this chapter is not about the process of deciding where we are on the periphery. If I pass judgment on you, which is what he's addressing here, I pass judgment on you, your way of doing this or not doing that, not like mine, and so I consider you, what, uh, weak, I consider you rigid, I consider you mistaken. If I pass judgment on you, I'm no longer deciding where I stand on certain peripheral matters. I'm there. But we're also here together in the body of Christ and in this local expression of it that is First Evangelical Church of Memphis. So what do we do with our permissible differences? Let me give you two things from this chapter. They're both in verse 19 here. Verse 19 articulates our application. Verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue peace, build up. That's the word for edification. We seek to be easily edified rather than being hard to edify because we get too particular uh, or hardly ever edified because we become more so than anybody else around us in a certain uh, area. These are mutual actions in verse 19, not one-sided. Pursue peace and build one another up. In other words, move toward the complicatedness. Not away from it, move toward it. Let's put these two actions in verse 19 another way playing off the imagery we have in this passage. Don't eat your own. Right? Don't eat each other up. And don't trip your own. He talks a lot about stumbling blocks. Don't trip each other up over permissible differences. Things on the periphery, the Bible doesn't necessarily decide for us. Don't Eat each other up, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't trip one another up, verse 13, let us not pass judgment on, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, a sister. Both images come together in verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Don't eat each other up. Don't trip each other up. Instead, pursue peace and build up the body of Christ around you. Whether you eat kosher or don't, whether you eat meat offered to idols or don't, if we're in a first century context, whether uh, your uh, convictions align with mine on a host of permissible matters or don't by the time we get to the 21st century. Don't consume one another. Don't trip one another up in our following the Lord. We trip each other up either by not adequately respecting one another's conscience or, or trying to get one another to sin against their conscience. If, if, I, if I'm just not free to go there, don't try to get me to go there. The first line of verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You see that verse 22? 
The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That's basically a sanctified way of saying where core doctrine or obedience to God is not the issue, let each other be. Instead of twisting noses and twisting arms. Now let each other be is not passivity. What it's not is hostility. Love is not live and let live. I talked about this in a previous message. We do exhort one another. We admonish one another. We even confront one another. But the admonition of love is that we do that in the pursuit of peace. God has decided this for us in his word. This is a matter of prior will of God. Here it is. I want you to pursue peace and build one another up. So let's take these one, two, and that'll be our time. First, pursue peace. Or, if you prefer, don't eat your own. Don't eat each other up. Let's pick it back up in verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. First part of verse 20. Look at the end of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That sounds really dire. But this is why God says in other places that among the things he hates is the sowing of discord. That's what's on the other side of disrespecting permissible differences is it creates hostilities. It's, it's, I, I call it sharing your spleen, you know. It's people, it's people sharing their spleen instead of pursuing what's in God's heart for his people. We talked about pursuing peace back in chapter 12, verse 18. If you want to look back at it for just a moment, chapter 12, verse 18 if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And from that passage, chapter 12, verse 18, I talked with you about how peace is not refusing to engage in conflict. Some conflicts are necessary, and the if possible of chapter 12, verse 18, acknowledges this reality. Some needed admonitions will require, by necessity, a confrontation, a risk of confrontation. But pursuing peace requires we work on ourselves in working through differences with others so as not to let ourselves lose the church forest for the sake of our tree. Peace doesn't require agreement on every point, but that we keep our disagreements from turning into hostilities. To pursue peace is to keep the center the center the core, the core, the gospel we mutually believe has to have the first and the last word between us. Our common experience of God's grace is what we have to key on. There's a lot on the periphery when it comes to beliefs and practices of Christians, but there's also a center. And people of peace in the body of Christ have a characteristic, and it is that they think centrally. I mentioned Alan Jacobs last Sunday, his book, How to Think, in which he calls thinking 
the power to be finely aware and richly responsible. Put another way, thinking Christianly is not going to lead you away from others when it comes to permissible differences. A sect mindset will do that, sect, S-E-C-T. That mentality leads you away. It becomes a purity quest. I want to get with people who are, who are holier and holier and holier. And finally, you'll find the group that's, that's too, too holy for even your, your joining them. I've said this each week uh, from this chapter, and I'll say it again next week. Those with the stronger view have the responsibility. On them is placed the responsibility to maintain the kind of relational integrity that does not put tribe over church, no matter how important you think your tribe is. We'll look at it again next week. Look at the first verse in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Why, why does Paul put it like that? Bearing with the failings of the weak, we are strong? Because that's how we see it when we, when we square off on permissible differences. Those on the other side of a permissible difference are failing in that. They don't see it our way, which is obviously the right way. They don't do it our way, which is obviously the way that purer Christians do it, the way it ought to be. This is why we hold things over one another. And the text says we're pleasing ourselves when we do that. It's not about God. God God does not require anybody to be heroic for him. He doesn't need us to defend his honor. It's so often about ourselves. And we consume one another. And we can develop a taste for that, consuming one another. We like the taste of being right. We like getting with others who agree with us. And so often when we get with those with a, that agree with us on some disputed thing, we, we, we run down those who don't. It's delicious. We'll even serve hors d'oeuvres. We have great dips to go along with that. But we're feeding our spleen. <laughs> And we, we become voracious. It, it plays to our pride. And, and we develop this unhealthy interest in offering correction. What happens when we develop a taste for eating our opponent's lunch is it turns into the worst kind of tribalism, which is Christian cannibalism. The cannibal assumes he'll always be the one doing the eating, never the one eaten. If I can quote to you from Jacob's book, How to Think, one of my consistent themes over the years has been the importance of acting politically. He starts politically, he moves to other areas. The importance of acting politically with the awareness that people who agree with you won't always be in charge. That is, I believe, that is the reasonable and wise way uh, in a democratic social order to make a commitment to what political philosophers call proceduralism, an agreement that political adversaries ought to abide by the same rules because this is how we maintain a peaceable social order. And then he says that belief is on its way to being comprehensively rejected by the American people. And I have seen this in both academic and church settings as well, using the existing rules against your opponents 
or formulating new ones with the explicit purpose of marginalizing them without pausing to ask whether such methods are fair or even whether they might be turned against you someday when the political winds are blowing in a different direction as they will. But now that happens not just between tribes, what he describes. It happens within tribes as well. You go looking for the group that's more progressive and find that you're not progressive enough. Or they keep moving that direction. Or you find the group that's conservative and you, you find that maybe you feel like the, you know, the, the most conservative one and then they start moving even further right. I think of King David's experience with Joab, his general, and Joab's brothers. David called them the sons of Zariah, and he said, they are more severe than I am. David wasn't the killer that they were, and they turned on him. When the rules of belonging get tighter, the tests of faithfulness more particularized, cannibalization begins. And one way to tell that's happened in a group or a movement is when that group or movement gets more defined by what they're against than what they're for. And there are times it's necessary to articulate the negative, what we're against. There are times to take stands, even out on the periphery. But evangelicalism as we know it fragments way too easily these days. Brothers and sisters in the Lord attacking and defending back and forth. Who's the true Baptist? Who's truly reformed? And you follow some of these debates and find there's a lot of unfair critique. There's a lot of caricature. Fair critique, I think I said to you last week, is, is I'm able to recognize myself in your critique. You say, I believe this, I teach this, and I say, yes, you've understood me correctly. That's exactly what I believe. That's exactly what I teach. It's not misconstruing. But evangelicalism, it fragments too easily these days because there are too many centers. There are too many hills everybody thinks you've got to die on. There's too many cores. And in some ways, uh, evangelicalism has always been susceptible to this because we're a movement. We don't have a a central governing authority like a denomination. And so what everybody does is you you pick your favorite uh, Christian of note. Uh, You ask that celebrity into your heart, as it were, you know, and you become a John MacArthurite. You become a Tim Kellerite uh, because you ask John MacArthur into your heart. You ask Tim Keller into your heart and everything they teach is right, you know. You ask Cole Huffman into your heart, some of you, bless your hearts for doing that. Um, and you think everything I say is, is right, don't, it's not. Um, it, I, I'm not, it, become, it becomes necessary in these contexts to say, I have no problems with John MacArthur or Tim Keller. I just, they came to mind. But what happens uh, when we do that as it were, when we, when we set our, our, our figure up as the one who's right, I mean, it is kind of entertaining from my vantage point oftentimes through the years. It doesn't happen a lot, but I've had people come up at the end of a sermon and go, well, you know, uh, I heard John Piper preach on that, and he doesn't see it like you do. Well, <laughs> let's just take a moment, you know, to bow to John Piper uh, because obviously he's closer to God than I am. Obviously he's got a big ministry. He knows things more than I do. That's what you do to preachers when you do that. Please don't do that to us. It's terrible. 
But, and I love John Piper, he's a nice guy. Um, <laughs> how will this be misconstrued? This will be the interesting thing to see Monday morning. Um, we've always fragmented as evangelicals. I mean, there's always been a measure of that. But today it feels like you've just got these seismic plate tectonics happening under us. And so even just what defines an evangelical, uh, the, the whole political question, the generational consideration, uh, the formational consideration, what, what is it that forms us as Christians? All of that seems like it's up for grabs. I make no pronouncements or predictions about the future of evangelical fabric, which has always been a mosaic. But our movement is, is right now not characterized by peace and mutual upbuilding which are areas, because they are areas the Bible has decided for us, <laughs> this means we have some work to do. We need a work of the Spirit that gets us back one by one and all together to one core center and a clear gospel in that center and our mission being, as Paul put it to Titus, to adorn that gospel, adorn the doctrine of God. Our mission, as uh, Calvin said in his writings, is to proclaim the gospel promiscuously. It takes repentance, returning to the center, learning to think centrally. It takes repentance. Uh, Scotty Smith, a uh, pastor a long time in, in Franklin, Christ Community Church there, posted this prayer online. And I, I found it this week and loved it, loved his words. May your kindness lead me to repent quicker and deeper, Father. Help me grieve my self-righteousness just as much as I'm offended by anybody else's unrighteousness and my prayerlessness as much as anybody's haughtiness and my passive aggressiveness as much as anybody's active ragefulness and my lack of faith as much as anybody's lack of self-control. Jesus took the judgment we would deserve on the cross, and now you love us with the fullness of compassion, acceptance, and delight. Deepen our repentance and supersize our compassion for fellow broken sinners, Father. I'm easily edified by that prayer, both because I find my, I recognize my guilt in how he puts things, but also my aspiration to more and better. This takes me to uh, our second point, and then we're done. Don't trip one another up over permissible differences. Look again at verse 13. We get the language. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble. There it is. By what he eats. And once more, verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God, verse 22. And on in verse 22, in fact, I almost forgot there, the little proverb into verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. The NIV puts that a little cleaner, a little more succinctly. The NIV says, blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Which means what? It's in the context of stumbling blocks. If I don't learn to respect permissible differences, if I have a tendency to go tribal and put that in the center, my tribe, then I will inevitably, 
I will approve, if not aid and abet, disharmony, discord, division over things we don't need to be laying out, uh, laying each other out over. That's why we get the little note back up in verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Kingdom of God, not a matter of eating, drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ, acceptable to God, approved by men. Why? Because I'm, I'm not giving myself to what God hates. Discord. Stumbling blocks. Tripping one another. I mean, put it in the context of your family. Do, do you like it when your children fight with one another? Does it not, does it not, is the experience of, of disharmony between siblings not a grievous thing for a parent to go through? It, it definitely is. What we're being told in these verses is the better part of loving another Christian in and around permissible differences is not trying to change their mind or worse, rub their face in the difference that we have. And disfellowship with them over it. The better part of loving through permissible differences is to limit your freedom. And that's where we say, well, I don't, I don't think I like that. I don't want to do that. Why should I have to limit me around someone I consider uh, too tightly wound? Or just wrong uh, about uh, some matter that where, where we affirm the same confession of faith, but, you know, they, they, they angle a little this way on this particular question, and, and they don't uh, do like I do over here. And Well, the reason we, we, we have to limit ourselves is because we have to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You have to. Old Samuel Johnson said, we take friends as we find them, not as we would make them. The Bible has decided this for us. But it's not just that. Jesus gives us resources by His Spirit to do it. So it's not, it's not just love each other because God says so, period. To a point, okay, it is that. But willing yourself to love, willing yourself to love those you might otherwise find uh, just hard to or uh, and conclude you can do without them, you have nothing to learn from, willpower will only take you so far. You'll come back and say, well, I tried, it didn't work. They stayed in their position. They kept on talking to me about this. The motivational structures of our hearts have to change. We have to get out of our spleens and the rancor we feel when someone doesn't do it, uh, won't see it like we do. What evangelical Christians have always been after is inner renewal a work of the Holy Spirit of God that, that fills us personally and works out in relationships. This, this is classic evangelicalism, that, that I prove the working of God in me relationally. Can I run with other believers? Can I run alongside other believers? Or am I running them over more often than not? I'm running against them. I'm finding fault a lot. The practice that's, that's deeply evangelical as opposed to being progressive or fundamentalist is, is moving with the people of God. The larger part of loving one another because God said so is that we get more of the triune God when we do that. 
When you do the things God wants you to do, you get more of Him. We get a greater sense of His kindness and forbearance with us when we show the same to one another. So don't eat one another up. Don't trip one another up over things that should never really come between us. What we're being told in these verses is the better part of loving another Christian in and around through permissible differences is not trying to change them. But affirming the core of what we hold in common, the grace of God in common to us in Christ, and walking with them. And giving ourselves to Jesus over and over again. And the better part of that is as you do that, you begin to see the Lord among His people. You see the Lord blessing people who don't cut the pie exactly like you do in the portions that you allot. You see God doing things with and through people that you think, well, well, I, I, I always kind of looked at that as maybe a little bit off, but God seems to be moving there, seems to be working there. And so then your capacity to share in what God is doing, not just among you and your family and you and your church, but globally, it increases. We see the differences. We'll always see the differences, but we also see the common grace. We see the whole palette of grace, all the colors, and that's, that's what he wants us to see. Well, would you stand with me? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for this text and how it draws us to you, even as it draws us to one another. Because anybody who has tried this uh, realizes that we have to have large doses of your grace and love. And so, Lord, as that courses through us, as we draw near to you, thank you that you, in drawing us near to yourself, you make us more aware of each other. That's how it's supposed to be. It's what you've decided for us, that you want us to pursue peace. You want us to work on building one another up. There's a lot of things we could tear each other down over. And, Lord, the, you know, we, we, we run quickly to qualifications. We run quickly to complications uh, because we want to often give ourselves an out. And forgive us in that, Lord. You recognize better than anyone how prone to wander we are. But Lord, you continue to bring us back. You don't chase us, but you do pursue us. And I thank you for how you do this and you, you, you work gently with us and patiently with us. Even where others in the body have not been patient, even where pastors have failed parishioners in this area, your kindness and your goodness to us is great. And we thank you. Lord, thank you for um, teaching us by your spirit, not just in the moment, but on as we go. And we pray this will happen in this text as well. In Jesus' name, amen.